Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. I'm a little nervous here because I am going to screw up this name, and I don't want to because I so admire the work that this young woman is doing. You can do I, it. <laughs> I got it right. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. Yeah, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. <laughs> yes. So with that, I'm going to let her introduce herself before I freak out anymore. Hi, um, I'm Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. I am an assistant professor of physics at the University of New Hampshire, and I also have a core faculty appointment in the University of New Hampshire Women's Studies program. I'm a theoretical cosmologist and particle physicist. So basically, I think about how the universe first got started, how space-time evolved, and how all of the particles inside of it evolved. And um, I am, I guess, an expert on dark matter. Well, okay. <laughs> so as I always start this conversation, so um, just to let you, um, everyone know, I'm kind of fangirling here because I've been um, following um, you for so long because you speak at so many intersections that I find very interesting. So this conversation, you know me guys, I don't know where this is going, but we're just going to take this ride. So let's begin as we always do. Um, could you um, tell me why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Why is it important to cause a scene? I think that that's how change happens. And it's clear that the world that we are in could be better than it currently is and needs to be better than it currently is for a lot of people, for, for pretty much all of humanity at this point, given the threat of global climate change and global warming. So I think that causing a scene is a, getting it done. And that often it turns into a scene because there is resistance to people who are trying to get it done. The ways in which I am causing a scene, it's its funny because obviously, like, I don't wake up in the morning and go, okay, how am I going to make trouble today? Uh, it just sort of seems that I end up doing things that other people think are troublesome and me causing a scene. When I was a teenager um, and thinking about becoming a particle physicist, and I, I realized I wanted to do particle physics and cosmology when I was 10 years old. I wasn't thinking about, uh, you know, how I was going to need to change physics or anything like that. I kind of had sort of bought the multicultural myth that all that was needed was different people in the classroom. And then like, you know, diversity and inclusion would just like happen as long as like people took an interest. Like I even kind of bought the idea that it was unusual for black kids to be interested in science. And actually the data doesn't really bear that out at all. And so I thought, okay, I realized that I'm going to look a little bit different from my classmates in college, but it can't like be that bad. And then it was really that bad and at the same time, like I was aware that there were a lot of not great things going on in the world. And so I kind of thought, you know, those are things that I hope I will have a positive impact on by being like, you know, a positive role model as a physicist. And the way that it's kind of worked out is that I've been causing a scene by making a lot of noise about sexism and racism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism in physics in particular, but also just generally as a social problem and realizing that those things go together. 
it's so funny because I definitely did not want to be on this path. Um, this is, <laughs> I did not wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to cause a scene. No, that's just, um, as Black women, that's just not something we just, most people just don't sign up for it. It just becomes right. something that <laughs> just in our, just in our everyday existence, if we are, show up in spaces that we quote unquote shouldn't be in, um, we're just yeah. causing scenes just by our very presence there. And then you find, and I um, didn't have the language um, to like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Something's not right here. Something's kind of funky. What is going on here? Um, and then as I gained the experience and the language, it was like, wait a fucking minute. This is not, no, no, this is not happening. Um, and so it becomes where people think you're causing a scene. It's for me, it is just how I've just learned to, I have to show up in the space in this way, or I'll be disrespected, I'll be marginalized, all these things. You, I can't show up and want to be heard and be included if I don't say something. I definitely think that that was sort of, I mean, what you said exactly, like this isn't the path that I plan to take. And I have a lot of complicated feelings about that actually, which like I look at my white male colleagues who are of my generation, and they get to like just be a physicist and it's like not some big story about their identity and their identity isn't like some big story when they're in the classroom or when they're in the lab. Even like I was talking to a, a white woman who's a little bit more senior to me yesterday about like some racist incident that happened to me recently um, in a physics setting and I was like, that just wouldn't have happened to me if I was white. And she was like, that's totally true. That just wouldn't have happened to you if you were white. And realizing that, like, I, you know, I just want to be a physicist. But, like, in order to be a physicist, I feel like I need to have these conversations. And it, it does feel a little bit like a form of coercion. Like, being a physicist for me as a Black woman means being a person who talks about racism and sexism, even though I would really... Like, rather just be a physicist. Yeah. I mean, even like little things. So I'm a particle physicist. And so this, you know, I look at particle physics textbooks and in particular, there's like an area of particle physics um, called quantum chromodynamics, which sounds really cool. Okay. So, so okay, so I'm going to give you, I'm going to geek out a little bit here because I yeah. know a bit about quantum physics. Yeah. Uh, and I know about, um, so I know about waves and when you see things, they're different than when you're not observing. So I do understand that kind of... So quantum chromodynamics... So we have something called the standard model of particle physics, which is basically our big picture of what are all of the most fundamental basic particles that exist and how do they operate together and interact with each other. And so one corner of the standard model is called quantum chromodynamics. And this basically, if you've heard of the quark ever, which I think people have heard of quarks, right? So um, protons and neutrons, which you might have heard about in your chemistry class, those are made out of quarks. So um, they're not fundamental particles. They can be broken down into smaller particles. And so this, this area of physics is called quantum chromodynamics, and it's called that because um, in the 60s, when they were trying to name the various properties of quarks, they came up with something called color charge. And they decided to use colors to describe it, even though there was no requirement that color should be used to describe it. And so as a result, you read in books and like articles all the time, the phrase colored physics. 
Ooh. Right. And it's just totally one of those things. It's like, yeah, if there had been a black person in the room, particularly in the 1960s, ain't nobody's calling that colored physics. Like that, that's just like that. Yeah, that's I'm, not going to be a thing. We're going to fight about that one. <laughs> well, and it gets even more wild because the reason that they're using colors is that they, it's a way of, um, of remembering how things add up inside of the particles mm-hmm. so that the answer has to be white at the end. And so you add red, blue, and green to get white. (laughs) And you add red, blue, and green to get white in one calculation. And in another calculation, you add red and the opposite of red to get neutral, which is also white. It's totally like... And so it's so so interesting because I'm always... So I constantly um, in bold um, letters, in, in all caps, um, tweet out or, or or highlight things, and I put in all caps. This is what white supremacy looks like because everyone thinks it's um, Ku Klux Klan, it's Nazis. They don't see the little bitty things in our everyday lives that communicate white supremacy. And that right there, the people who came up with that would argue to you to out of breath that that is not what that is, but that is exactly what it is because it is, it continues the, the propagation of the narrative that white is, is, is always good. It's pure. And it's neutral. White, white is neutral. I mean, it's actually kind of, um, like, I, I guess I would get in trouble for saying this, but whatever. It's like stupid because, um, in one of the calculations, sure, like you can argue that the the, the um, all of the colors together is white, whatever. But in another one, you're basically getting neutral, which is like transparent, like there is no color. And so there's like a really deep comment there that we are socializing physicists into understanding physics around this idea that white and neutral are co-identified and synonymous. Yeah. And so it really... And it sounds like, oh, it's not that deep, Chanda. It's just like this one thing. But it relies on your intuitive understanding of white as neutral. Exactly. And reinforces it. And so it becomes this mutually reinforcing structure. When I go to talk to a particle physicist about the fact that white is treated as neutral socially, and for them, that's part of their physics picture. Yes. I'm then dislodging two different things simultaneously or bumping up against something that's very hard to dislodge because it's very deeply embedded in their knowledge base. And what you, and what you just said just hit for something for me because another thing that I speak about often is tech is not neutral. And that's where that, that's, it's, so when you're talking about, it's always these things and then the, where the tech is not neutral part is because... The, there are white people who are who are creating these things, and we're, and people of color, marginalized, are telling you these things are harming us. But we pass that narrative so much into the wider community that tech is neutral, and also that we know what's best for you and trust us. So do not question us. And it, right. it speaks to, and so I'm, I'm breaking this down for everyone who's listening, so that you can see that when Kim, is, I'm not. I'm not nuts when I'm telling you, when I'm trying to connect the dots to all the different things and the different disciplines and the different things that we face every day that says that white is what Chandra just said. White is either white is good and anti-blackness is bad. Um, You know, blackness is bad. But it's also that that area that trips a lot of people up is saying white is neutral. Yeah. Because again, you have on the spectrum of racism, you have the white supremacists active white supremacy and you're like oh okay but it's the 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 liberals 
in that neutral area that cause a lot of pain. Right. Right. It's, and it's so funny talking to people about this because I'm, you know, I'm so prepared that people are going to listen to this podcast and be like, oh, she's so sensitive. It's just like one phrase, colored physics. And it doesn't even mean the same thing in like Europe as it does. This is like another one because there are so many European scientists in American science and, and it's, and physics is like very global that people are like, oh, that's so U.S. centric. And I'm like, Okay, but I'm pretty sure that if it was something that was like deeply offensive to like white Jews, then we would be having like a conversation about the importance of recognizing the horrors of the Holocaust and the pogroms that my own family survived. Right, but that somehow we don't need to be sensitive to the fact that like my mother and her family had to survive the version of America where, and I've had to grow up in this version of America where white continues to be identified as neutral. And that like, even um, our whole social discourse is oriented around like darkness being dangerous and bad. And, you know, as a light skinned person, I don't think I'm as affected by that as other people are, but it certainly affects all of us in the sense that I'm the lightest person in my family. So when people are talking about darkness is bad, you're talking about the rest of my family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I challenge and see, I'm that person. So bring, I want them to bring it on to this podcast. <laughs> I challenge that because I'm always challenging people want to say, Oh, that just happens in the U S bullshit. This stuff is, is colonization and, and pro whiteness and anti-blackness is global. You see it in, in Asian countries where people are bleaching their skin. You see it in South America in Latin, um, um, cultures, cultures where, um, I was having an interview with someone, um, and they were talking about inclusion. They were like, yeah, there are 400 people here and only three, two black people. And I was thinking, I'm thinking U.S. black. She was like, no, they're the blacks. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So you guys discriminate against skin color there too? And she's like, yeah, really badly. So it's yes. everywhere. So this it's, it's, it really galls me when people want to make it seem as if um, this narrative is just a U.S. problem. This is the reason I don't even say that I'm American. I am a U.S. citizen because I'm, the United States is a part of the Americas. There's a North, Central, and South America. And it also propagates that whole myth that we are better, but then it, 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 it enables other um, Western socialized white cultures to distance themselves from it, us, as if we're bad and they're, they're, they're not tainted by the same um, narrative. And that's n- just not true. And I really want, I'm so happy you brought this up because I really want to have this conversation about white Jews. I <laughs> for you to come. I wanted a black Jewish person to come on this because com- I'm all, um, I am often um, called anti-Semitic. I'm also called an anti-Semite. I am often um, because I refuse to have a conversation about the equivalence of the Holocaust and slavery. And I have refused to have a conversation that says that, um, first of all, both were genocide. So let's not compare pain. Both should not have happened. That right there is a problem for me. Let's not rank those things. And then you have white Jews or people, uh, let, me, let me make this very clear. Jewish individuals who are white passing and actively pass as white. 
I would say they're white Jews. I actually think this is a really important point. Okay. They so, are okay. white Jews. And so I was, I'm going to let you say that because that's your culture. Because okay. I don't like to speak yeah. when I'm not. But what I do tell them is, um, what I can't say as a black woman is we don't go around asking you what you are. When you come outside the house, you look like a white person to me. And if you, and then that's, there's, a, there's a, a certain way I, I feel I need to act. I don't sit back and say, are you Jewish? Are you Italian? Are you, you're white. And yeah. you self-identify, I don't know the difference. You know, in some ways it's like very simple and it's also very complicated. So the way that I tend to think about this is as um, I like to use a tent analogy and a tent framework, which is that there is a tent of whiteness and you either get to exist inside the tent of whiteness, generally speaking. And this is like not just your everyday life, but also kind of your structural life. Like how um, has your family been treated Um, like, let's say you go to the bank to get a loan for a mortgage or anything, right? And then also, you know, how do you get treated when you're walking down the street? Or how do you get treated when you go into stores? And there can be some flexibility on this point, right? Because like, sometimes um, people think that curly hair means something that it doesn't mean or like, whatever. Um, White Jews exist within the tent of whiteness, I don't think they live in the center of it, right? Like, I think that in the United States, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, wasps, live in the center of the tent of whiteness. And I do think that Jews are often at risk, all Jews are often at risk of, like, being kicked out of it, those who were ever inside of it. But I think that there's, like, a level of assimilation that people do engage in in order to become white in the United States. Like Irish people were not always considered white in the United States, but they are white now. Italian people weren't always considered white, but they are white now. And I think that like people like to make this more complicated by saying, oh, well, my grandfather wasn't white. So my grandfather was born in Brooklyn in 1917 to two um, Ashkenazi Jews. So um Ashkenazim are an ethnic Jewish group that are from Western and Eastern and Northern Europe. Pardon me. And when he was born, he was not white. When he died in 1988, he was a white man. He was, he was a working class white man who definitely, um, he, he had a state health insurance and they didn't catch the cancer soon enough. And that's one of the reasons he died when he did. Uh, so that's not to say that there weren't other things that like he was a machine worker, factory worker his entire life. So it's not like he had some like wonderful life just because he was white, but he became white. And I think that that's okay to say. People are very, very sensitive about that. And so I guess like I would, the other comment I would make about that is that when white Jews claim that they are not white, it is really damaging for Jews who are actually people of color. And I don't just mean people like me who have one black parent and as well as a white Jewish parent, but there are also black people who are Jewish who have two black parents who are very dark-skinned, who are not light-skinned, who have type 4 hair, not type 3 hair. Those people also exist. It's not just about light-skinned, Ashkenazi, Black Jews like me. Um, So I think that that's part of the conversation. And then I think one other thing that I'll add is um, that sometimes people who are not Ashkenazi, people who are Sephardi or Mizrahi, so people who are from, who's families originate in like Spain and Italy and Northern Africa and the Middle East, um, 
particularly the people who are like whose families are from Spain and Italy will say, oh, but I'm Sephardi and Sephardi people are marginalized in synagogues. And because they're marginalized in synagogues, it's like being a person of color. And I'm like, look, if you think that being marginalized in a synagogue is like being like a black person walking down the street, you really do not understand racism. Um, and the marginalization in our synagogues is real. Ashkenazi centrism is real. But it's also the case that when I walk into a temple, and this has happened at the synagogue where I am a member, people assume that I'm not Ashkenazi because I'm a person of color. So I don't even benefit from that centrism in some ways, even though the cultural context, the dominant cultural context is one that's familiar for me. So I think that like white Jews are really distracting us from a needed conversation about whiteness. Exactly, because that's the part that gets me. It's I see all this distraction inside these communities. And it is like we get there together or not at all. And I really and it really infuriates me when um, when this happens, because it's like, okay, I, I, I understand oppression. Let like people say, let's not do the oppression Olympics. Yet, as a black woman, I realize that I have more privilege and not as marginalized as black trans women. And so I give them space. I would never say I have that experience. And it's like, I don't understand how people can't see that it's, these are not gray and black and white issues. These are who is the most marginalized in these, in these communities. And those are the individuals who we should be making sure they're protected. So, um, and the fact that you're saying that even in your own synagogues that people are marginalized, it saddens me. Um, and that is, those are the, those are the conversations we need to have within our communities because we're white supremacy is not going away until we, until we collectively the marginalized push up against it. So part of what's really distressing about this, in addition to like just kind of the personal experiences of erasure, I'm, is also that while we're having this whole argument about, and I don't mean you and me, but like while white Jews are taking up a lot of time and space having this conversation about how dare you call me white and all of this, like meanwhile, the things that are happening out there, like children at the border being put in cages and white supremacist vigilantes going to the border and feeling empowered to just like be there with their guns threatening people and that fucking horrifying, horrifying, like there are, are no words and I feel emotional talking about it. What happened at the mosque in New Zealand, um, that's happening. And then you have like these white people running around being like, I'm not white. You've hurt my feelings. Yes. It's like, yes. It's like, oh my God. It's we like, need to confront white supremacy. Yes, we need yes, to confront yes. white supremacy. Not your, not your what white are you tears. Doing? Not your white tears. Well, that's and the, exactly and, and the fact that you can fall into white tears tells me everything I need to know. <laughs> right. I actually think that this is like a really key piece of it. And it's something that like, um, actually came up in a Twitter argument that I got into with a white Jewish writer that I actually normally respect and agree with and who I think has even done some really good writing about white Jewishness and Jewish investment in whiteness. Um, that I was like, look, the obsession with Representative Ilan Omar's comments and calling them anti-Semitic, just because like, look, it's like, it's a fucking, like, if you don't know Biggie Smalls, like, that's, that's your problem. 
that's your problem. That's like, that's a meme for black people, including black Jews. That is a meme. Um, it's all about the Benjamins. It's not because Benjamin's a common Jewish name. Like I couldn't believe the people who thought that that's why she had said it. It was like, no, that's just the thing that we say. Um, as I was like, look, it's a form of white fragility to think that every little thing is about you and that like we couldn't have another like cultural context for these words and that as I am as as a community on which the America the Americas and in, in the broad sense that you've used it has built its wealth and has been made out of alongside with indigenous people we have a right to say it. We're just, we're claiming that word now. We're claiming that phrase. And it means what we tell you it means because we have the power to do that. When white culture appropriates everything we have anyway and, and, and makes it like as if they created it. So you not only take from us, but when we, but when we use what we created, it becomes offensive to you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. we not only take it, but now we need permission to use it. <laughs> You know, and that's, and the funny thing is, is that like I should say that I'm I'm inclined to be concerned with and sensitive to people's feelings of being targeted with anti-Semitism. My first experience with anti-Semitism was at the hands of fellow Black students when I was in college. I was really caught off guard by it, and I've actually since talked to um, a friend of mine who's also Black who's not from New York. And he was like, when I moved from the South up to New York, I was like, what are these folks on about? They keep talking about the Jews, this and that. I think that sometimes um, there's a particular dynamic and discourse about Jewish people among some black people in New York and generally in the North, like area, like Chicago, New York areas that we would consider the North that people tend to think is national, but it's not how the conversation looks in other parts of the country. And so they were talking about like the Jews and how like the Jewish landlords um, uh, charge these really extortionist rents. And I was sitting there and I was like, you mean white people? And so actually the other piece of it is that when you identify Jewishness with whiteness, then it becomes that much harder to talk about things that are happening because of the structure of whiteness and how that empowers certain people at the expense of other people. And the wild thing about this is that James Baldwin wrote a beautiful essay about this in 1967 in the New York Times. Anybody can look it up. It's still free online. It won't count against your monthly article count or whatever, where he said, and I can't remember exactly what the title is, but it's something like Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. And basically the point that he makes in the article is that the problem isn't Jewishness or Jews. The problem is when Jews start to act like and live as and be a part of the power of whiteness and therefore act the um, get the power to move the levers of white supremacy in their favor. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. 
To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. White supremacy in their favor. And so I think everybody on, the, on both sides of the conversation needs to remember that has nothing to do with them being Jewish. Their problem is that the Jews that they were talking about were acting like white people because they were white. And I actually think that this is a deeply embedded Christian dynamic, which is that white Christians had a lot of anti-Semitic ideas that I do think get transferred in black churches sometimes. And do this identification of Jewishness with whiteness then becomes this thing where people can't tell the difference. And I do think there is an underlying anti-Jewish sentiment there, but I don't think black people came up with it. And just being, you know, I'm from the South. Um, and for us, it's, we, I didn't even understand that there was a Jewish thing until I became older. To me, there were white people and there were black people. I had no idea about this Jewish, that, that Jew was a thing. I didn't even know what Jew was. I mean, literally had a mentor who for, I didn't even know he was Jewish until we started following each other on Facebook and he was celebrating a holiday. I was like, well, didn't know that. Um, so this is, this is where I'm coming from is that white Jews, I'll use that term um, in this conversation, n- need to understand that in other parts of, the, of, of people's experiences, it's, it's again, a, a Jewish person for me growing up was no different than a, a white Italian person or a white Irish person. They were just white people who treated me like shit. And I, I didn't, no one um, differentiated them bet- between them. Um, I, I, I'm sh- you know, they had their oppression. I didn't know about it. I just knew that we need to be careful around all white people. <laughs> that's, that's the, 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 um, the narrative I was told for my own safety. Um, and if you see it through that, it's again, and then again, it's not that that's a personal thing. That's just my reality. And now that I know better, um, but I'm going to tell, and I've never said this and I'm going to say this publicly here. I'm going to say this publicly here. Cause I'm like, fuck it. Let's do this. The most, racially charged experience I had that actually traumatized me because um, the next day I was woke up crying so loudly in bed that my mom was like, I've never heard that sound come out of you. Was um, at the time I was in my early 20s and I was um, doing, I was in Chicago and I was doing youth work. And I was, um, which is you know, working with young people in school, um, after school time, summer camp, that kind of thing. And I was training adults who work with young people in that time. And so the, um, the, is, is it the Anti-Defamation League? Uh, it was, yes, it was, right? yeah, yeah. It's in Chicago. They have these trainings that they were going through high school or schools with. And so I was going through the training and that was the first time I've ever seen the, um, the line activity where, you start at one place, and by the time you end, that privileged thing that was traumatizing. Um, there were I don't several. Think should do that. <laughs> there was there were several ac- activities they did that was traumatizing. So, I could say there were like forty people in that group, and there were three black people in in the whole group. Everybody else was Jewish or white. I, I'm, I, by the end of that, mm, by the end of that day, we were so so. Everybody's telling their stories. They're bringing up stuff for me again. I'm a black kid from Atlanta, so I'm, I'm, I'm. You're triggering all kinds of things for me. They 
not only would not allow us the space to process that, but told us that it was inappropriate at that point to process the trauma that we were experiencing based on that. And I didn't, I just walked away feeling like, just like shredded on the inside. Mm. Um, but d- immediately next day, I, need to kn- I knew I need to go to counseling because that had really just fucked up something in me. And that was the first time I recognized, and people are going to be pissed at this, that Jews thought that their experience prioritized my experience. I would definitely say that's true about white Jews. I don't think that that's true about Jews of color. Yes, yeah, see, I've never been around Jews of color. So these were white Jews. Right, right, right. And I actually, so what's interesting about this is that I, I'm... If you actually look, and there isn't really great data about this, but Jews of color make up at least ten percent of the Jewish of the American Jewish community, if not more. Um, but we are very invisible in national discourse about who is a Jew and what does a Jew look like, and 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 it's sort of interesting, right? So, like famous examples. I mean, everybody, I guess, kind of knows, like. Um, Lenny Kravitz, for yes. example, is like a really famous Jew. Um, or uh, uh, Lisa Bonet. Yeah, Lisa Bonet is, and and the fact that you know the, the the two black Jews had a little black Jew together is like very exciting for everyone. And um, and uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is another sort of well known. A black Jewish example. But what's notable about all of these folks is that they made their careers as black artists, right? Like on black television shows, making black music. And Lenny Kravitz is like, uh, you know, he's kind of the one black rock musician who was able to break through. Like when I was in high school, you could actually hear Lenny Kravitz on K-Rock, which like infamously wouldn't play black people. Um, but even he, I think, got pretty pigeonholed and it was more of a struggle for him to break through because he was black and it was like, oh, but is it like really rap music if it's a black dude doing it? Which like, you know, um, you can think about like most deaf, like Elvis Presley and Got No Soul, Chuck Berry is rock and roll, right? But that of course gets flipped on us. So I think what's really interesting is that like black Jews are out there and they're even part of our public discourse, but they're black. They're not Jewish in the public discourse and like a, in a, in a very serious way. And I am, um, I remember, um, uh, Rebecca Walker, Alice Walker's daughter, Rebecca Liebenthal Walker, when I was like maybe a junior or senior in college, like in 2002 or 2003, she published her memoir, Black, White and Jewish. And it was like a really mind blowing read for me because it was in a lot of ways like reading a childhood that mirrored my own being raised by um, a single black mother who was an activist and then um, who had been married to a, a progressive white activist Jew and then the father kind of goes off and has a life in a different place and is better off socioeconomically and going back and forth between those two households. The situations weren't identical because I think Alice Walker was better off financially than my mother and I were growing up. But like, um, there were a lot of parallels and kind of dealing with the fact that like, 
I mean, even when I feel like when I was younger, I was like, wow, Rebecca and I even kind of look alike. And I had like never seen someone who kind of looked like me. Although I think probably people like to make the Tracy Ellis Ross comparison a lot more um, because we have similar noses. But what's interesting about that, right, is that like I see a lot of white Jews and I'm like, that person has a nose that's kind of like mine, but the tip, the tip of my nose is more like my mother's than my father's. But people notice my bridge more than they notice anything else, right? But part of being a black Jew is you start to have all of these thoughts about which parts of my face come from the Jewish side, the white Jewish side, and which parts come from the black side. And I guess like the comment I would just make about it is that like Jews of color are actually out there, but I'm we're only sort of claimed by the Jewish community and our Jewish identity is always precarious, right? Like I think people have, would not experience any real challenge claiming Harrison Ford as a Jew. And I don't even know if his mother is the Jewish parent. I'm not sure she is. She might be, but people don't ask that question with like white people, but with me or like, um, my, my sister friend, Rebecca Pierce, or Nyla Burton, who are two black Jewish women writers who were recently attacked in the Israeli press. There was a whole blog entry about how in, in I think it was in the, not the Jerusalem Post, Times of Israel published it, um, questioning their Jewishness. And questioning the Jewishness of a white woman who was a Jew by choice, someone who had converted, but who's now a rabbi. She's a freaking rabbi. But really the article, I sometimes feel like her inclusion was a cover to make it seem like the article wasn't racist when it was just like clearly racist. When I go to scientific, like I'm visiting, this happened, I was visiting Columbia University astronomy department. One of the older and very prominent astronomy professors, instead of asking me about science, which is what I was there to discuss, he was like, so one of your last names is Weinstein. Which of the parents is the Jewish one? And you know, not to say like, oh, I have it harder than people who look more what people say stereotypically black. I like to be really careful about that because black looks like a lot of things, but people often have like ideas about it. But that's something that uniquely happens to me. The chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department gave me a Hebrew test once. He was supposed to be talking science with me. But he was like, he asked which parent was Jewish, whether I was really a member of a synagogue, which synagogue, where and was it? Why does it? that matter? Would you, would you go to your Christian um, no. and ask no. exactly? No, no. All of the, and, and, and there's a specific targeting there that also specifically happens to people who are critical of Israel. Whew. But it's definitely a warning, which is that if you are a Jew of color and you somehow cause a scene that white Jews are not on board with, you are no longer a member of the tribe. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's the tent of Jewishness, and we live on the very edge of it. And they're ready to push us out the door anytime. And so that gets me to a to a um, very interesting question because I'm just sitting here because um, one of the things that I uh, until recently I never and I still I don't consider myself a feminist because I'm like my blackness is is what they see coming out the door I uh I, I gender I can deal with I've dealt with that it's me being safe as a black woman um so for me I prioritize bl my blackness how do you knowing that you're at this really precarious inter um intersection and and at the shit are you even at the door of the tent how do you how do you manage because you're you're 
two marginalizations. Well, you're well. Now I'm not even going to talk about being a woman, I am which so, is a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to talk about that. But um, because God, no, I am going to talk about that because you are a person in STEM, a, 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 a woman, a black woman, a Jewish woman in STEM, which is already um, your professor. You're in this feel that I'm sure that does not have many people that look like you, period. Um, and yet you're expected to maintain a level of professionalism at work and, 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 and a level of well-being and, your, and personal. How, how do you, that, because mm, I never, just, and I'm so happy I had you on just to have this conversation about the intersection, that's what was just interesting to me when you said yes, because I was like, oh my gosh, she's at so many intersections that I find very interesting. And I'm having like these one-off conversations and you kind of swoop up so many of them. How do you manage, do you prioritize one over the other? Do you challenge in trying to have them all equal? Because, or do you make a decision or how does that work for you? And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I live my life as an integrated identity, right? And, and part of the challenge that I'm always facing is that in some sense, the way that society is currently structured and the way that people are socialized is that it's very hard for them to accept my identity as, and my ascribed identities, all of these things that are socially constructed, like I am, you know, my sex, I think is socially constructed. I was socially assigned female at birth. Um, I don't really have an internal sense of gender. So I'm a woman, but I'm also a gender. Um, I'm queer. Uh, queer is a very socially constructed word that has had different meanings at different times. And I'm, I, as much as possible, I'm trying to experience these things as like, I'm an integrated single person. And integrating those things and becoming and feeling whole about it has certainly been a struggle. Like even because we're socialized to believe that we're heterosexual, basically from birth onward, that like it becomes a process of excavation and realizing, like, I remember when I first like had the realization that I was actually not just attracted to men or maybe was more attracted to women, which I think is probably where I fall on the spectrum. Um, that I said to like my high school best friend, I was like, yo, didn't you fantasize about women in high school too? And she was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And it was cool. Like she wasn't upset about it or anything. It was just like a conversation that we had never had because I had like never consciously thought like, why is my bedroom covered in pictures of Christy Turlington? And how come none of my friends have pictures of Christy Turlington everywhere? Um, Which by the way, like Christy Turlington, if you're listening, I still really want to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that there's that element of that. And then there's really, I think one of the biggest struggles that I have and I even have difficulty in figuring out how to talk about it because I think that our current environment is hostile to nuance. Um, And I understand some of the hostility. People are in a lot of pain and that makes it hard to focus on details. And it it makes it hard to focus on other people's details that maybe don't feel relevant to you. I'm very, I I get that at like kind of a gut level. I am that I am constantly arguing for 
my right to be in the places among the communities that I claim and that I most strongly identify with. And I understand. So in the case, for example, like I I think that there has been like an increase in chatter on Twitter about me not really being black. And I understand to some extent. And from London or something, right? Yeah. Apparently I'm also from London. (laughs) I mean, okay, it's true that like I spent part of my childhood there, but I was born in the house my mom lives in and all of my friends from high school can tell you we are definitely from LA. And I think people listening to this can hear that in my accent as well. Just a little bit. There's a lot, of, there's a lot of Los Angeles in my accent. I am um, that, you know, it, it, the stuff on Twitter, like, I didn't even know if those people are real or if they're like bots or whatever. But there's clearly like an element of social discourse that um, where people try to address their feelings of exclusion by creating their own in-groups. And so that's one piece. And I think like the other very obvious piece is that there's like a long and very nasty history of light-skinned people trying to pass out a blackness There's a whole narrative about people saying, I'm not black, I'm biracial, and like thinking that that's like magically different. And I think that that, for me, like, I find that painful. I'm like, look, this is my community, this is my fam. Like, I don't want to be dealing with having this conversation. I don't want to be fighting with you about this while we have to go out and fight white supremacy. And so it's funny, like I come home and I tell my husband stories of things that happened to me that I don't, you know, I'm usually, I think people think I'm someone who just tweets things and I tweet a lot of stuff, right? But there are certain things that I actually keep to myself because I know that like it requires a level of nuance that people aren't ready for. So I'll come home and be like, oh, someone made a comment um, about me being darker than them. Like a white person made a comment about me being darker than them and like, I just wish people knew that these things happened to me. So I remember like the day after the election, I am a, a, a woman that I would consider to be a friend, a black woman who is dark skin. Like I think by anybody's standards would people would call her dark skin called me and said, you know, what if you just didn't tell people that you were black? Maybe you wouldn't experience racism anymore. And that was like a really frustrating phone call. And at the same time, it really crystallized something for me, which is I was like, people, some people really have a fantasy about the life that I lead that's not real. And I understand why people want to have that fantasy. But it was like, so let's say it's certainly true that when I'm walking down the street, sometimes people think I'm Middle Eastern and sometimes people think I'm um, Latin American, like Puerto Rican. But those people also actually experience racism. And that's part of the nuance that is now getting lost in the conversation is that like racism does not only target black people. Exactly. Um, So, okay. So I think that's something that's been very present on my mind, which is like, how do we even have a conversation about the fact that some of this is fantasy and not reality? Like what people imagine. Um, and, And even like, you know, people will say like, well, in the South, you would be able to pass. And I'm like, look, when I went to Atlanta, so many black women commented to me about how pretty I was, even when it was like the middle of the night and I looked like shit. And I was like, I know they're not talking to white women like that. They knew that I was a light skinned black woman. And what they were commenting to me about was like, oh, I'm light. And it, and it was ugly. 
in some sense. It's it's that whole, um, you know, that paper bag test. You know, we have right. been taught because even growing um, up here, um, I am um, have Cherokee blood. I have, you know, Maso raped us too. So there's some white in there. So my hair texture is different. I got that all the time growing up. What you mix with, what you mix with. Because I was not considered fully black. Um, something, there's something about, or, oh, your hair, you got good hair. No, any, to me, and I get it now, but it's like any hair that you can, that you can do whatever you, I mean, the fact that you have hair on your head. Um, but I get it now because um, I could, I could, I remember my cousins would tell me, that I would, um, my grandmother would be straightening their hair and I'd be sitting there laughing at them because I didn't have to get my hair straightened. So there's a lot of internalized um, anti-blackness and white supremacy in our communities that we are not talking about at all and is causing harm to other people. Well, you know, part of what's interesting to me about that is that when I say, so I, as a result of all of this, I've been thinking a lot about how is black constructed? What is black in the future? Who, who are the people that we call black? And I think that there is a certain strain of thought that orients definitions of blackness around who people think the police will shoot. Mm-hmm. And part of what's interesting about that is actually that per capita, Native Americans are the most likely group to be murdered by the police in the United States. It's not actually African-Americans. Um, or people of African descent. Well, let's just be honest. Native American and indigenous, indigenous groups um, have uh, completely erased yeah. the narrative that I think that, the United States. That's definitely that's definitely part of it. But I, and and I, again, I think that this definition of orienting towards the police is clearly about pain and about violence. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a Mexican and a Mexican immigrant, Mexican American neighborhood that where we knew all kinds of crap with the police. Like police violence was not something that happened over in the black neighborhood. It happened in our neighborhood too. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this sort of orientation of the, 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 this is a unique dynamic. Um, I think sort of uh, uh, ignores kind of the larger issue in some sense. It ignores the, the connection that if we saw the similarities, we yeah. would, it, it's the same thing, um, and I can't wait to have this um, gentleman on the, um, um, and I don't have the book in front of me, um, uh, about poor white people. They, we, are, we have so many, poor people, period, are, have so many similarities that if they did not dissect or segregate themselves into these groups, they would um, be a, a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> um, and, and it's, it, and it becomes, but I, Okay, I'm just going to, let's think about sociology here. Um, girls in middle school are just like the worst. Just, this is, that's just when we yeah. start clicking <laughs> and yeah. we start finding out little groups. And I want to bring this back to science because this is a thing that, that kind of ticks me off when people want to say, oh, um, girls just drop off in middle school. Well, that's not necessarily true. Are you looking, are you looking at a whole picture? Are you looking at the girls groups who are who find science or stem um 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 um, engaging or fun or cool they're not dropping off they're going straight through high school um and going to college into these things um but but there are groups of girls who now because their their bodies are changing they're interested in boys and that so there's a there's a thing that they're going off in that direction and there are girls who um, are, are 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 you know like sports so they're going off and I mean we're really clicky 
in middle school. And I said that to say, just, just with what we were just talking, it's like these groups, all, they're all middle school girls. You know, they all define, I mean, are defined as middle school girls, but they just go off into these different things. And if they, if they could, if we could, and this is why I think coding and people can disagree with me should be a required second language. They don't have to learn how to, they, I'm not saying everybody needs to be a pro- programmer, but there's a language there that they need to understand moving forward. Um, just like the periodic table and all kinds of other things that they're missing out on. If we could have, so let me extrapolate that and say in these conversations that we're having, if white Jews could see and understand that the marginalization they're putting on Jews of color does not help the group as a whole and is actually causing pain, yeah. Then you could you won't. It's, it's like I don't know why we do that though. It just seems like just natural. We just think, like, we just do that. I guess like you know I I, I think like partly I want to step back and really say that one of the reasons that like these fantasies happen and that we're even like that this conversation about the police does happen is that it's clear that skin color matters and it matters intensely. Yes. Um, and, and there's, you know, obviously lots of data to back that up. And, and, and it's interesting bringing up the middle school example because dark-skinned girls, particularly at that age, are treated worse than lighter-skinned black girls, right? Even within, that's, that's a real phenomenon. And that's a phenomenon that lasts for life. Like there are studies that show that um, people, white people think that lighter-skinned black people are smarter than darker-skinned black people. Mm-hmm. They're all of the, I mean, and that stuff is really real. And so I think that part of the challenge before us is figuring out how do we have a conversation about this fact that that stuff is really real, but that kicking people out of the community is not a redress. It will not resolve the problem. Um, and it's only and it's only exacerbating the problem. And and in some sense, you know, I think like you know we fight amongst each other while um, the white supremacists are laughing all the way to the bank. At, in some sense, and and I guess the other thing that I would say, actually, going back to just like you know, girls who are interested in science. There's long been sort of the stereotype of like, oh, girls just aren't interested, and that's why they don't end up graduating with bachelor's degrees in science. Um, or that, like, in particular, like, students of color aren't interested, and in particular, um, Black, Latinx, and Native American Pacific Islander people are not interested in science, and so we have to go into schools and get them excited. But actually, data shows that the problem isn't at the K-12 through level. It's when those students get to college that things go wrong in the classroom or in, and at the college level that somehow they get weeded out, they get discouraged, they leave. Um, and, and so it, it's kind of interesting that sometimes I think that university professors and college professors like to blame K through 12 teachers for everything that's not working right in higher education. And that's one of the things that we just say, like, oh, the teachers at the K through 12 level aren't doing a good enough job. And I'm sure they could be doing a better job. It's clear that the racism in K through 12 education is extreme, Mm -hmm. especially I think it's most impactful for um, darker skinned students and also for indigenous students. Um, But it is 
also the case that a lot of those students are getting out of the K through 12 system excited about STEM and then universities and colleges are wholly unprepared to support them in that excitement and interest and support them in sustaining it. And um, I, I, you know, you, you asked me about this and then like we kind of got on a tangent, but I will say that as someone who is Jewish and also black in the scientific community, I have occasionally benefited from being Jewish, even though it has also presented me with problems with white Jews being asking questions about my identity, that there were a couple of times when I was able to bond with white Jews over Jewish stuff in a way that other black people couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that black and white Christians bond in physics in the same way. Um, and a lot of it would be like, oh, yeah, my grandfather was from that neighborhood in Brooklyn, too. Oh, yeah, like for Passover, we're doing this. Um, and there, there, there are certain connections that I don't think that those helped me enormously professionally. But there were a couple of points when it made my life a little bit easier um, in terms of just being able to have a conversation with someone. Yeah. And helping cope with whatever situations and, or. And, and just feeling like, oh, for this, you know, hour that I'm talking to this person, I feel like I am maybe part of the club. And that's maybe an hour that someone who wasn't Jewish didn't get. Mm-hmm. But someone who wasn't Jewish, but was black. Oh, this is a, I knew this was going to be a great conversation. Um, and as we wrap up, is there anything you, you'd like to in, leave us with? I don't know, this is like maybe totally random, but I guess I just want to say, speaking of the tent of whiteness analogy, that people need to, people who have a white parent really need to stop saying that they're half white. Like, this is part of why people don't trust us. (laughs) So I think that that's actually, I know that that seems like a weird thing to kind of leave people with, but I think as we're talking about, like, I'm, you know, having a whole identity and how do you kind of cope with being chopped up i'm um, say you're black and ashkenazi jewish say, say you're, you're black, black and german american say that you're black and irish american that's so much better than saying you're black and white mm-hmm. mm. so i think think about doing a different kind of math with who you are mm. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Um, Thank you for making the time. (laughs) And um, I'll see you on Twitter. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Call the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCallTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.